This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back to Get Psyched, everyone. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I am sitting down with the ultra-talented, incredibly intelligent Dr. Kelly Sturette. For those of you that are not familiar with Dr. Kelly Sturette, he is the author of Becoming a Supple Leopard. He knows anything and everything about mobility, recovery, injury prevention, how to move better, and ultimately how to live better. But today we talk about so much more than mobility. We sat down to talk about holistic healing and what that looks like. How when he has a patient step into his office, he addresses things like sleep, hydration, nutrition, and all of the different things that affect our ability to heal and live a healthy lifestyle. We also dive into trauma and how the body keeps the score. And Kelly has a conversation that he says he's never had with anyone else. So I'm so excited to share this with you guys. If you have a chance, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five-star rating and review as it continues to help me get guests like Kelly on the show. You guys can also take a screenshot, share it on social, send the show to your good friend. Please, please, please let's share these conversations as they just continue to fuel us and move us forward. So from the bottom of my heart, I thank you, sending you so much love in the first episode of 2021. Here we go. All right, Dr. Kelly Charette, what's up? What's going on? Not a whole lot. I'm so excited to sit down and chat just because you, A, have been such an influential part of my athletic career. Oh, boy. <laughs> but also, you were the only person to talk to me like a fucking human while I was going through injury recovery. And hmm. like the first person in my experience in the Western medical system to be like, yes, you should be moving your body or no, what were they thinking immobilizing you for that many weeks? And it just seemed like everything that I had been told from orthopedic surgeons and everyone else was so opposite to what actually helped me get better and what, what you were explaining to me. What do you think that is? I mean, is how, you know, you're a professional person. You've been through higher education, learning, certification, I did. I went through, jumped through grad school. Like we have to codify these things. We have mm -hmm. to have the official process. Why are we so siloed? What's that about? Because it's like someone said, "This is all I ever know," and then I don't need to know anything. The rest, the way the rest of the world works. Exactly. My brain only works because I all I try to do is. This is you talk to my mom. This is the only way my brain worked as a kid. I need to know how this thing I'm doing relates to the other things that I was doing, or relates to this other thing. So for me, it's all about relationships. So that's like shorthand for pattern recognition. Like I believe you, but I need to see how it all fits together. And that mm -hmm. means that I have to be curious about the rest. You know, like trust me, I'm not the expert nutrition on nutrition, but I need to understand how that works and affects your tissue health and your sensitivity and your, et cetera, et cetera. So I have to become skilled or competent in it. And then I think one of the things that happens, and you know, maybe you can speak to this too, is that I get to work in a lot of different places. And I don't just see one kind of person or one kind of problem. And so I'm constantly having to develop a model in my head about what's working, what doesn't work, how does this fit. And I have to apply that model towards 
as many diverse skill sets and as many different diverse groups of people. And that really quickly, you're like, oh, this doesn't work. I better <laughs> readjust the model because otherwise right. this is all bullshit. Right. There's not a one size fits all. Well, and it can't, right? It, it can't be. And yet also through there, though, are those, you know, if we overlap, I need to see where those points of intersection are. So yes, you're, you are a unique, special snowflake human being, but you're really not. You're not that special. You need a certain things. And, you know, it's, we've gotten so bad at, especially in orthopedics or injury, I mean, even just the language is negative. You know, I use the word, like, I really got on my way to stop using the word rehab. You know, I'm like, you know what rehab's for? Getting you back to zero. But I'm not at zero. I just have an injury. I'm an athlete. Mm-hmm. Or I'm a person who's active. So actually, I don't say we rehab injuries. Like prehab is just sets me off. And some kids, I have some friends who are really good at prehab, but that, whatever that language is, but I'm like, oh, it's the worst for me. I mean, I'm already broken. I don't even know <laughs> it. But, you know, I train. I either train with an injury or I train with a problem or I train with a newborn or I train. It's the same thing. I train because I'm super stressed or and I'm super stressed or I train and, you know, they're just the same dials that we turn up and down. And it's our just inability to see the whole picture all the time. It's sort of to – that's our failure, I think. And that what's so easy is just to rely on the Nate – the native abilities of a human being to heal and to suffer and to, you know, if we just left you alone long enough, chances are you would have healed and you would have gotten back slowly. But man, we only just gave up two or three years and you put on a whole bunch of weight and become depressed and like, it's fine. It's fine. You know, I think at the heart of this is even a simple idea who owns it and who gets paid for it. Yeah. That was what was so tough for me. And I was such a thorn in my doctor's ass. I was like, I won't throw anyone under the bus. I had an insurance company at the time that felt like an insurance company first and a health and wellness provider second. And so I was on board with, hey, we're going to try all of these different interventions because surgery is expensive. Surgery is, you know, a lot to come back from. So I was like, yeah, I will try every single one of those interventions. And I know my body. I know what I'm working back to and hopefully exceeding. And so if something's not working, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to let you know that this intervention is not doing what we're setting out to have it do. And quickly it turned into like, give it another week, or maybe we should do our next, our next appointment remotely. We'll do it on like the, uh, the patient portal online. And I was like, how in the hell are you going to check the stability of my elbow of this joint on my body through a computer screen? It's in your head. My, my injury. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously you're the limitation. Yeah, clearly. That's, um, you know, first and foremost, I think we, we have a type one error in our health system, right? And I mean, how, when I mean like, how do we define success? Mm. So, I think one of the problems as a human being is that we're going to be 110 years old. I mean, I just saw a statistic that 50% of the kids who are five and six years old today are going to be 104, 105 years old, at least 50%. So how do you incentivize ability, you know, when there's so much money in disability and in disease, and that's a really sort of pessimistic view of this thing. But how do you then come about best practices? Because it's really difficult on a scale that's 100 years long to see what inputs and outputs are. It's really impossible to know what I'm doing is working. One of the things about that intervention is you're like, oh, we'll do these interventions because they're cheaper. It's also the right thing to do. 
but the intention of we'll just put it off so that you'll be dissuaded Mm -hmm. is strange. And if those things didn't work, who owns that failure? Who owns that failure of outcome? Mm. You know, one of the things that kills me about physical therapy is it's not very transparent. I can't really see what a failed physical therapy visit looks like. You just stop coming. So is that a failure? Did physical therapy fail? You know, so every single one of those things, why are they still there if they didn't work? You know, is it because they work sometimes or just people go away or we accept such low bars of function and that we're so, well, you're out of pain, right? That's not good enough. You know, the whole disability model that the physical therapist espoused to follow is a model put out by a guy named Sag Nagy and um, the Nagy model. And it really looks at like your elbow is a tissue level impairment. That's the problem. You had instability because you tore this ligament and did some trauma, right? The functional limitation is that you can't do X, Mm -hmm. right? So now we're now we're talking medical language, right? Oh, we can stabilize that. But the disability is you can't occupy your role in society. You can't do your job. You mm-hmm. can't occupy your role in the family. You can't recreate. But we don't talk about the failure of that disability. We've talked about, well, I did my job, right? Or we gave it a chance to heal. Or you were willing to accept so much functional limitation and the changes in your disability that we didn't actually stand up and say, this is not okay. And, and it's a real problem because people are treating their medical system like it's a car mechanic, right? And I'm like, okay, so for example, every once in a while I get someone who's dealing with chronic pain or persistent pain. Mm-hmm. Typically not my main area of focus as a physio coach, but it happens, right? And definitely when I'm, people who are managing long-term chronic conditions, my knee has been hurting for seven weeks, for example, after surgery. Yeah. And, you know, part of that persistent pain, chronic pain idea is, um, you know, getting someone spun up enough to be able to manage it and not show up with it and not know how they got there. For example, I make everyone track their sleep. If you show up with an injury or a surgery or persistent pain or chronic pain, you get to track your sleep for me. And I just don't believe you. Because if we're trying to establish what is what is what and where we're going to make some changes, then I need to know that you're actually getting eight hours of sleep, not ten, eight. And what I see is I'm like, oh, I can't even tell what's going on because there's so much noise in the system. And then I'm like, can I, can I just take some pictures of your food? And then how do you deal with your stress? Oh, you're drinking a bottle of wine a night. Or you're hitting the THC every night because you're so anxious. And we haven't given you any other tools. That's not a bad tool. It's just a less effective tool overall in your sleep and health. And right. So what we'll see is that people will consistently reach for the tools that they need to self-soothe with. That those that's definitely food. That's definitely you know watching TV and downregulating and trying to deal with stress. But those first principles are so out of whack. And they're so out of lack for so long and the human being is so tolerant that when you show up all of a sudden and you don't have a movement practice and you don't sleep and you don't eat. And I, notice I didn't say CrossFit or deadlift, I said movement practice. Like you, mm-hmm. didn't move, you didn't put your arms over your head this week. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You didn't, you didn't squat below parallel this week because there's no toilet you know, below <laughs> parallel. You just didn't. You just went around. So you didn't use your body the way it was. You know, the first things, you know, we try to sort out. You know, I get, I get um, intercom tickets, people on our site email or text, hey, they have questions. And I, I get like 15 really in-depth questions every day that I answer. So I get to see what people are struggling with. And 
I'm like, are you walking 10 to 16,000 steps a day? No. Okay. Well, I can't really tell what's going on because you're not decongesting enough. You're not moving enough. You're not breathing. You're not just moving the sewage out of the system, right? I mean, that's what your lymphatics are. It's your sewage system. So what, what we have to do then is, again, why am I having this conversation for the first time? Can you tell me about your home life? Do you feel safe? No, I don't feel safe. Uh, I'm going through a tough divorce. I have a newborn. Uh, like, what, which one of those things is not important? The key is who's getting paid to manage those things, and why aren't we empowering people to appreciate how much better their life can be if we pay attention to those things? Because we know how bad it can get, mm-hmm. and we know how much the human being can tolerate. So, you know, you're a unicorn of a person coming in because what I'd hear is I don't do push-ups. I, why? Well, I hurt my elbow back in Vietnam. <laughs> you know what I mean? And someone told me not to do anything with it because I would hurt it again, you know? And so, you know, again, who's getting paid? Who owns what? These are really difficult existential questions. And, you know, the internet has shifted. You know, we see, we have tens of thousands of people who are we're taking a crack at fixing themselves. We've been doing this for over a decade. We see that some people are feeling like, hey, it's not working very well. And, you know, maybe doing a little gut mobilization, rolling around on a roller to help you downregulate also changes some aspect of your brain. Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. Maybe you feel like you were empowered because you had some control about yourself, a sense of self-efficacy kicked in. You're like, oh, I felt a little better. I felt like I had some control. There's a million ways into this thing. And <clears throat> I think early on I was a little bit less agnostic. I'd be like, this is the way. Mm. But now I'm like, I don't care how you come in. You can come in through the meditation. You can come in through the eating. You can come in through the downregulation and the mind practice. You can come in through the physical practice. But eventually... The human being is not that. It's the most sophisticated, complex structure in the known universe. That's yeah. what humans are. Your brain is like freaky, freaky good at memorizing pain and picking up patterns and protecting you. And, you know, the questions are, what we see is that when we peel those things back, you suddenly are like, oh, you go to Soul Cycle and you go to church and you eat, you know, barbecue and like you don't eat processed carbs. I'm like, you're gonna, you're killing it. <laughs> it really doesn't. What you'll start to see though is that you go to CrossFit, you go Paleo, you, you know, you feel like you're in a, f- a stable, f- fun family, and you feel love with your girlfriend. You're killing it. Right? And what you'll see that we can't strip a single one of those things. It'll look differently, but the thing around we can have a conversation about which we think is, will give you a better outcome for a certain specific thing, but. We are not, I mean, your physician has, she has six minutes to talk to you about your problem. Right. Because she's getting backed up and jammed, right? So did she watch you run or do a push-up? No. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, you're like. Actually, you, under her breath said, well, I know someone will never do CrossFit again. And I was like. Wow. Excuse me? Wow. Oh, so maybe that was really important. Maybe she's like, I'm going to just drop a little mind bomb yeah. on this person. So, you know, I, I, it's really this interesting thing because <clears throat> if I say to you, honestly, like, answer this question. How are we doing as a fitness industry? Like, let's look at how healthy we are as a, as a country. How are we doing? Give, us, give me a grade. <laughs> We're failing. Okay. We are failing. So, you know, recently, um, Jillian Michaels came on and talked about a fitness trainer who talked about why she thought CrossFit was dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a whole bunch of, she's not an expert in this realm, but at the heart of that is, man, that's really a difficult argument to say that you don't do it, you don't know it, it's been around forever, it's the, the science is in there, the proof, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a zombie argument. But, you know, 
let's just look, let's take CrossFit out, just for example, because I'm a CrossFitter. Um, but let's take CrossFit out, and they'll say modern CrossFit, not the early volume craziness where we, we had all these like sharp toys we didn't know. We all got cut <laughs> a little bit, right? Just that was, it took us a second. It took us a minute, yeah. We didn't know that, you, you know, like snatching and rowing takes a second to figure out what's going on. But if I have to shine the lens at boot camp, soul cycle, small group fitness classes, 24 hour fitness, fail. We have not changed society. We have not changed culture. We have not reduced injuries. We have not reduced happiness. We have not decreased obesity. We have not decreased diabetes. So how dare you point the finger at someone who's trying to take a crack at this? Because what I see is, boy, there's not enough coaches. There's not enough physical culture. We need to start earlier. You know, there needs to be a presidential physical fitness council again. There needs to be... CrossFit needs to be a high school sport. There needs to be, you know, a Spartan race at every middle school. Like we have a, we, and we start there with the principles of, man, you know what? You, you don't have any program for that? You don't have any funds for that? Great. We're going to walk a mile a day. We can do that, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to ban soda on campus because at some point the bill's going to come due. And when you suddenly are, take this kind of the 30,000 foot view and you look at it, I'm like, your elbow is not that special or different than someone whose foot hurts or, I mean, it happened in some, you know, high accident trauma, you know, in a moment. But, you know, when we get to the bottom of it, the thing that heals people and the things that make people whole again are universal. And again, however you want to talk about that, however you want to come into that, there's a million ways to deal with it. You see your your voodoo shaman who breaks the chicken neck and he gets better every time and he do some kind of loaded Pilates. Dude, it, it works. And the only thing I need to know is in inputs and outputs. It really is. I, and we can, again, argue about my systems better than your hard style, soft style, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, once we start applying those foundational principles to the fact that the human being is, you know, muscles and tissues are like obedient dogs, and the brain is capable of infinite change over and over and over again, thank you, Carl Rogers, then we can, you know, really get to the heart of the soul. The Man, we're not doing a good job. Where are we going to stop breaking this cycle of madness? So when you are chatting with a new client or patient, how do you go about that? Because I feel like so many of us have been spoon-fed kind of like a take this, you'll feel better. Mm. And it's not that easy. It's not a universal pill that we can swallow or a literal pill pill we can swallow, right? It's so much more than that. So how do you start to address that in such a sick society that wants that immediate gratification? I was just talking to a physio friend and I said, look, the, the vow of the bodhisattva is to stay on earth until all beings are enlightened, right? I'm not saying I'm a bodhisattva. I'm just saying you have to want to be enlightened and you have to know that enlightenment is possible. Right. So what I'm saying is it's going to take us a minute longer than we thought. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think the first thing we want to do is any therapeutic conversation needs to be framed in terms of what's important to that person. So the thing is, what is it you want to do? Like really get to that question. I want X. I want to be able to do this. And it may be look good naked. Great. That's fine with me. I want to occupy a different role or a slightly better role in my mind, in society, in my family, in my workplace, in my play. All of those things. You know, when I go into, I go into big office, big corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, uh, right before the shutdown, I was at Microsoft. Pretty big company. You may have heard I've of heard them. of it once or twice. So I'm up in Seattle at the world headquarters at Microsoft talking to all the Microsofties. And uh, I don't pitch this lifestyle thing, moving more, down regulation, because if they don't do it, they're going to die. 
I do it because I'm like, you think you're kicking ass, but you're not. Mm. You think you're feeling good, but you're not. You think you look good naked, but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, you can actually look better, feel better, have more free time, work harder. And for the for the companies I work with, I'm, you know, when they they ask me to address. I'm like, just so we're clear, this is all about getting more out of your workers, right? This is what this is. This is a sneaky thing you're doing. They're right. like, they're like, that's what we're talking about. I'm like, yeah, that's what we're talking about, because when people feel better, everything's better. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you know, my daughter was watching. Um, survivor okay they've just they've just become survivor aware like this is amazing <laughs> and i'm like and they really are into the dynamics of the people like the, the all the survival stuff whatever like naked and afraid was the first time that they were like they paired the vegan girl with the paramilitary guy this is gonna be terrible like they figured it out early right early. and uh it was villains versus heroes you know, so George is like, oh, it's villains versus heroes. You know, the worst villains of Survivor, the be- biggest heroes of Survivor. And I was like, well, I mean, some of the questions that we have, and I was like, you know, what do you think that does to your brain when you're identified as a hero or a villain? Right. right? First thing. Right. And second, I was like, tell me about the happiness of the tribal life. And they're like, oh, she's like, the villains is just it's an awful way to be. They don't work together. They're starving. They don't get all the stuff. Their camp sucks. They're just stabbing each other. They're just scrabbling around. I'm like, what about the heroes? And they're like... They just seem happier, mm-hmm. you know, and they're better and they collaborate. And I was like, okay. And it turns out villains won, a villain won because they had the numbers and it's just, you know, whatever, it's a survivor. And I was like, well, was it worth it? And she's like, well, it wasn't worth it to live the way they're living. And I think that's really the key is that we can live this way. But uh, Buckminster Fuller, you know, great philosopher, scientist, dreamer, said, look, if you want to change a system, you can't change the system within. You have to create a better model that makes the other model obsolete. And people will go over and leave that because they're like, what's going on over there? The mm-hmm. heroes are all suntanned and having fun and eating better. Like, I want that. And I don't think we do a good job of pointing that to people. We just say, don't do this, otherwise you'll be a, hero, a villain. And that's, that doesn't inspire anyone. And it doesn't, it, people don't know how to figure it out, <coughs> work it into their busy lives. It's busy. I mean, you know, I'm like, one of our friends, Laird Hamilton, has this idea, he's like, look, you're not confirmed as a person. He says it to men. He's like, you're not confirmed as a man until you have a child. Mm-hmm. And it's not, not because you have to have a baby to be a complete person at all. And that's not what he's saying. But he's like, you think you're a kick-ass man? Well, let me see. You can take care of another human being. You have to take care of your partner. And you have to do your job and still be a kick-ass man. You know, and he's like, and if you can't do that, you're just not confirmed yet. You're a great guy. You're just not confirmed. And I think... At the heart of that is it's really complex and messy to be a human. It's always, you're always dealing with something. Car broke down, mom's sick, we're in COVID, I'm living with my teenage daughter, she's crazy, <laughs> right? It, it, the, the game is that it's always going to be messy and you'll never have it played. That's the game, right? And in the context of that game, I'm like, oh yeah, eat more vegetables, <laughs> you know, sleep more, exercise more. And so I just create these lists for people where they feel like they're failures because they didn't check off the 15,000 things. If I want to destroy a woman psychologically, I'm looking at you, like (laughs) high-functioning, super badass, very self-aware, I give you a list of things you have to do to, like, be successful every day. And if you don't check them off, you know what your your woman brain does? You're like, damn it, that guy will get it done. Right, like if I if I do that to my wife and like give her more like this is your routine you have to have this turmeric and then you have to do this gratitude practice and yes. then do this journal like it's never gonna happen. So how do we constrain the environment? So if someone has a uh, 
cerebral vascular accident or head trauma. And let's say they have a stroke. That's the, the common parlance. And they start to lose function in one of their arms. One of the constraint therapies is actually to constrain the less affected arm and make that person use the limb that's not very functional, right? That's lost connection to the brain, that's a lot, right? And what they do is you actually put a glove on the other thing or tape it to the body and you make that person use that thing. Otherwise, they will never ever use that arm again. So in this moment where we have this real change possibility, someone won't ever use that hand. And so the hand just, the brain's like, oh, we just don't use that left hand anymore, that's fine. And it will never get used. But if you're like, you know, that's how powerful this notion is of, of how we can rewire our brains, how easy it is for us to do the easy thing mm-hmm. because it's about survival. And survival and being 105 and having abs and a kick-ass hot wife and stealing a car, I mean, that's the game, right? That's the gold game. And, and I think it really is that interesting, that model of looking at this constraint therapy when I first saw that in physical therapy school with the with the um, you know the uh, the OTs, occupational therapists, mm-hmm. I was like, man, that's amazing. What are the ways can I constrain behavior? Because that's all it is is behavior constraint. You think like that's crazy, but I'm like, well, what happens if I just take the cookies out of the house? Totally. <laughs> then it's I'm like, way oh, where are the cookies? For me There's to no change co- my environment <laughs> than test the willpower. Yes, and that's I think what we don't do. And and if you if you don't believe me, just park your car 400 meters from your house and have to walk to it. I mean, you can do, you can lay a thousand traps for yourself where you don't have to make a decision. You don't have to do another thing. You don't have to sort. But that's what we have to do. If you go to, and we have all these standing desks here. We're such fans of trying to move more. But if, like, if you set your standing desk at a certain height and then you whip out the plug, in order to drop that thing, you have to get it on the ground and plug it in. And guess what? You're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. You're too lazy. So you'll be like, well, I'll just stand. <laughs> And that's the kind of thinking suddenly where we can use constraint-led behavior and have much better outcomes. Here's an example. It's up your alley. I got into therapy like seven years ago. and uh, How do you feel about that? Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it uh, changed my life because I was so angry and had so much childhood trauma. And uh, my wife was like, I think you need to talk to someone. You know, and I was like, I don't need to talk to anyone. You need to talk. My mom's a psychologist, whatever. And... Um, now, Juliet and I on Wednesdays on the calendar before before the shutdown, since we live together now, we talk about a lot, but we had something called a feelings meeting every Wednesday. Mm. And it's on the calendar. So we would have a date, we'd go out to dinner, and we it's on the calendar. You have to talk about your feelings at Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Like, it's coming. Right. And so you start to organize, and that was not like, hey... 11 o'clock at night, is this a good time to talk about my feelings? Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's never going to happen. <laughs> right. Right? So even that example of learning this beha- constraint behavior around having a, an emotional, difficult conversation with my wife once a week about the things that I did that w- I could have done better or things that bugged me or our kids, that was just a constraint-led behavior. And, and that may seem really simple, and maybe you very evolved people can just have these feelings all the time and talk about it. And I'm getting better at it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that's really at the root of what's going on. And, and part of the thing I've become obsessed with, I'm 47 years old. I just had a knee replacement seven years, uh, seven weeks ago is what does it mean to be durable mm. emotionally? What does it mean to be durable psychologically? What does it mean to be durable physically? Because the hits are going to come. Someone dear to you is going to die. You're going to lose your job. You're going to be in a pandemic. You're going to be under stress. Your kids are going to make bad choices. You know, you're going to get injured. Juliet, in 2019, 
I think the whole pandemic is my fault because in 2019, Julie had breast cancer and I was like, fuck 2019, 2020 is going to be the best year ever. It can't be like 2019. I doomed us. I totally jinxed us. And, you know, us as a family to be able to rebound very quickly from that diagnosis, all the implications of having double mastectomy, all of that was because we had set up our lives in a way that we didn't have to make a decision. So we had a little extra tolerance to deal with that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think suddenly you're like, okay, well, I show up at Monday, Wednesday, Friday because my friends are there and we work out. I don't have to think about it, right? right? And then, well, I kind of, we don't eat cookies because everyone, no one else wants to eat the first cookies if we don't eat cookies. And I'm like, there's my constraint. And suddenly what you start to see is that it's easy to shape your life a little bit so that you can become more durable and have a little bit more tolerance. I need you to build extra capacity in the system. So if you're sailing along at 99%, you, man, I drop in a 10% thing on you, you're doomed. And that's and then you'll revert to the things that you do to self-soothe. You'll right. you'll self-sabotage. And the self-sabotage is not even the right word. You will self-soothe to survive. You right. will not at use that left point, hand. At one point it did serve your survival. Oh yeah. To do that. Well, and and then suddenly when you look at those those things, some porn, um, sugar, right? Alcohol, uh, you know, the serotonin of watching TV or being on the phone. You're like, oh, these are the things that make us humans and they can be hijacked very quickly, right? Mm-hmm. It's so easy. Human beings can be <laughs> led down the, the path of cookies late night. I mean, if I have cookies in the house, I, I kind of keep coming back to this, but I will wake up sometimes because I hear something and I'm like, oh, I might as well have a cookie. <laughs> it's there. Why not? I'll go, you know, Jill's like, did you eat cookies in the night? And I'm like, and peanut butter and a chicken. She's like, <laughs> I was like, I was up. Jill's like, you smashed a half gallon of milk last night. I was like, mm, so cold. So, <laughs> you know? No, it's, yeah. And it's one thing I want to circle back to and get your, your thoughts on is, um, Vander Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh. Julia just read that for the first time. And she's like, Oh my God, this is why I'm the way I am. <laughs> yeah. So for listeners that aren't familiar with it, it's about trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma, doesn't matter, any kind of trauma being stored in the body. And that was something as a survival mechanism, as a survival. Thank yeah. God. So how do you address that? I'm assuming it comes out, right? Like I could be coming to you for my elbow. But there is so much more stored in my body than that. Do you see that manifesting in your oh, yeah. clients? The key is, one, is not to expect it. People are complex psycho-emotional beings, right? And I need to figure out how I can help you work this into your life, right? Again, what are your goals? I think, okay, so part of being a good clinician is to appreciate that all of this is attached to the most sensitive, backstabbing, crazy, empathic, emotional, psychotic animal there is, right? Human beings. And, um, you know, being willing, you know, so if I have six minutes with you, is that a long enough time to develop trust and rapport? You know, someone, uh, one of my favorite therapist is a guy named um, Perry Nicholson of Stop Chasing Pain. That's mm-hmm. his That's his site. And he is a just brilliant, funny thinker, but he does a lot of lymphatic work, right, and decongestion. And, um, you know, 
he was asking me, which is so important because like it's one of those fundamental things. Like, well, let's exercise. Well, like, why aren't you? Why is your knee so puffy? Like, why don't, why don't we deal with the first problems? Like, why don't, tell me about your sleep. I can't even tell what's going on because you're so sleep deprived and you're making bad decisions. Well, you know, one of the things he says is, "What do you think about placebo?" And I was like, yeah. "Well, I'm like," he's like, "You know, people give it a bad rap." I'm like, "Well, how about this? How about we use a different word? How about belief effects?" Because if I work with a person and I'm sitting across from you, it's a different ball game. I think it was it was either my friends at Z Health or somewhere else put up a thing that were like, and, and they were quoting someone else, and it may have been Doidge or someone like that, right? The brain that changes itself. Um, you know that the brain is a social organ, so a brain doesn't act like a brain when it's by itself. And if you don't believe me, watch that TV show Alone right now. Alone. It's alone. So people who go survive for months at a time in the woods, and they are survivalists. Like they're they're not like naked and afraid. These people like store fish, they 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 hunt. They know how to just. They're these are pros. But you know what drives them out every single time? They're too lonely. Yeah. Even the psychos are like you know like this guy's out there alone. And he's like, oh, I wish why I wish didn't spend so much time on the internet when I came home. Like you're like whoa whoa whoa, like being alone in the woods got him to be so self reflective that he's like I shouldn't come home and be on the internet to talk to my wife. I feel like COVID has done that for people, <sighs> telling people to sit at home, not interact and so be with yourself. No wonder people are are freaking out, right? Yeah. So like. Um, there was a big party locally up here and my mother-in-law of course was just like, Oh, it's crazy. And I was like, well, you know, teenage brains, turns out they need other teenage brains. Otherwise, how do they know where they are relative to everyone else? They, you know, they're just floating around. Mm -hmm. So why that's not good to have a COVID party that shuts down your whole high school. Right. Right. It seems like there's, we can still acknowledge the truth that putting someone with someone else is a miracle. Someone caring and listening and having empathy and having enough time built into the system to be paid for spending an hour with someone gives us a permission and time to actually talk about these things as they come up, right? To, to noodle in the nuance. So if I'm a physical therapist and in San Francisco it takes me four to six weeks to get an eval, true, and then... I can't, I, and that's 45 minutes, mm -hmm. and I have to establish all of the rapport and everything in 45 minutes. Do I really know anything about you in 45 minutes? I know that something hurt in your elbow. Right. right? I don't know anything <laughs> about you. You know, oh, CrossFit. Oh, clunk. Right. Okay. I can just make a bunch of assumptions about you. Then in two weeks later, I see you for 30 minutes for follow-up. Tell me about that ther therapeutic process. Is it a physical, failure of physical therapy? Is it a failure of the, the psycho-emotional bond? No, there's not enough time. There's a type 1 error in the system. The system doesn't even work. And I only get paid for those two visits, right? And like, I've only paid for your pain. I'm not even like your your functions. Your elbow hurt? Can you do your bra? Get the fuck out of here, right. right? So, I think what we have to begin to ask again is, you know, where are these conversations happening? Happening? Can I possibly? So here's a, you know, I my knee. I had a high speed ski crash seven years ago. Put my femur through my tibia, literally. And finally, after like two months, went and got an MRI. And the doctor was like, yeah, we should book your knee replacement in the next three months. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. I don't think I'm ready for that. And he's like, all right. Well, that's, it's really bad. And I was like, no, I just have my, my left knee is a big bright wall of, ball of light. And my right knee is just a little less dim, motherfucker. It's, dim. it's just dimmer, <laughs> right? It's fine. And what I kept doing is, you know, I put it off, put it off. And by putting it off, I live my life. 
and I made better decisions and I spent my credits where I would and I managed the compensation. I did the 605 around half marathons. I did what I did. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, starting to bug me when I ski. Starts to bug me when I, you know, playing frisbee with my family. Like Mm -hmm. certainly that disability, not the tissue impairment starts to be the thing, right? This is why I really got my knee. But there I am in COVID. Our gym is going to be shut down. We're dealing with that. We're closing San Francisco CrossFit after 15 years. I've just had a knee replacement. I'm on the floor watching The Voice, and I just start crying. And my wife's like, you okay? I'm like, I don't know. I don't think so. Everything's dead. Everything's broken. You know? (laughs) I think we have all had that. (laughs) We have all had that moment. And that notion that you can separate out your brain, your mind, do different things from your body, impossible. So why aren't we taking these sort of just appreciating that, man, if you, you know, set up a set a certain set of behaviors that helped you to self-soothe as a kid because you had an alcoholic father and raising my hand, then, you know, let's appreciate that, man, those things got you here. That's so great. Right. But we're also, they may not be serving you and we're going to have to have enough time in this relationship. Well, it turns out for me, one of the, I'm like, well, who spends three to five hours a week with people? The pastor? Nope. The coach, the trainer. So we need to do a better job of looking at the person of the YMCA who teaches that small group class who is the only point of contact, the only source of unconditional positive regard for someone, the only person who's what's going on with Susie's life and her kids. That person needs to become professionalized. That person needs a better set of tools. We need to go in and be like, how can we help you become even more savage? Because we will go off the rails. And it's really hard, as you know, to change a pattern, to change a belief takes hard work. To change mm-hmm. your body takes hard work. And if the if the tractor trailer is on fire and you've driven it down a, a dead-end alley, then the first thing we have to do is get the fires out. Then we got to back that motherfucker up the alley. And that is hard to do. I don't know if you can back up an 18-wheeler, but I can't. But that's what people show up with when they're persistent pain and chronic pain or have behaviors that are making their lives really not good, mm-hmm. right? Or have coping mechanisms that are, that, are, that are making their lives miserable, that they become villains by not even choice. No, no one's even named them a villain. They just have become that villain. So, you know, we have, a, we have a society that has to do better. We have to have a more moral society that takes care. And, and I think that starts in your neighborhood and community and your gym. I, do, I don't even think you have to think even state level. I think it's community. It's like, do you know your neighbors? Mm-hmm. You know? And, you know, if you can just get your, get your mom to move a little more and get your kids to move, it's really hard. This is hard work. You know, it's so much easier for me to work. You know, I was, I was just texting with a, a Cairo friend who, um, he's the, he has the, the meme site called, uh, jacked up, uh, memes, uh, uh, wad memes for jacked up teens. It's like a CrossFit meme site. Okay. Right? <laughs> wad memes for jacked up teens. But he's a brilliant Cairo. And we were talking about the fact that, man, it's so hard to, to get the kind of therapeutic result you when people are paying $10. And they, it's discounted because they're copay and they have six visits. Versus when people have to pay me out of pocket, I have something on the line because if they don't get better or get the results or we don't solve this problem, they're gonna get, I'm going to get fired and a bad reputation mm-hmm. and I own the outcome. The other one 
no one's incentivized for that. The patient's not incentivized. It doesn't really cost much. They don't really have to pay anything. The th- therapist's not incentivized. The medical, so no one's incentivized and motivated. And there are brilliant physios and chiros working in those systems, brilliant therapists. But what, one of the things we found is that when people pay me lots of money to see me, man, they are like, I think the word is adherent. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. I think I, you know, we're not supposed to say compliant because that's uh, you know, it's a one-way relationship. Adherent, like we agree that this is what we think is best practice, and then we'll renegotiate later on. And I think even just the whole framework of that changes, right? People are really motivated. So you know, what the, what the surgeons say, like if you want really good outcomes, choose great patients, <laughs> right? And that is an right. old maxim. Like, oh, well, I can help you. Right. <laughs> so you want to be helped. And basically anything I throw at you is going to help. You know, Juliet says, um, you know, because we don't have these systems set up in school, I think that's where it begins, especially mm-hmm. elementary school. You know, I end up giving per- people a lot of permission and Juliet sometimes, like, I think I'm the world's best physical therapist <coughs> in this room between the two of us. Hey. But um, you, it may, may not actually be true. <laughs> but um, you know, Juliet says, you know, I don't even, my wife, like, who's our CEO and a, a lawyer and a boss, and uh, she's like, I don't even know if you're that good a therapist. You know, she's like, but you really are good at giving people permission to own the whole thing and to move and to be free and to make experiments and to own the outcomes, good and bad. And maybe, you know, that's a different way of looking at it because I'm a coach first and foremost. And every single day I get presented with the same person who's a different person every day. Sore, injury, stress, nutrition, and I have to read and run. Here's the plan. Here's my hypothesis. Here's what you can do. And because I'm a coach first and foremost, I approach that same thing the same way you know how much can I get done I have an hour you know and um you know permission to make mistakes permission to get it wrong you know permission to have a practice permission for me to say good job you mm-hmm. did great today so I don't know I think uh you know if you look around and see who are really killing it the, the therapists the the physios the chiros the coaches you'll see that the universal is that they're fans of humans and they have humans in there who are, have bought in Mm-hmm. And who are are like, okay, 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 whatever you're saying, I, I'm ready to listen to it now. Because the problem is, you know, I work with a lot of super young superstars. And, man, when they're winning, and it's easy. Like, they're just young and rad, you know. Uh, Haley Adams is a great example of someone. So she, uh, um, 19 years old, um, trains with uh, Rich Froning's gym. Mm-hmm. She was fourth at the CrossFit Games this year. 19. She's a savage. But two weeks before her CrossFit game, she twisted her ankle on her Her ankle, rope. yeah. Didn't twist it. She completely avulsed the ATF ligament. So just completely just did a number. Like you have an ACL of your ankle, it's it, right? Right. And she managed it. And then she showed up like a pro and didn't bitch, didn't complain, didn't use an excuse, didn't talk about it. She just, just rocked on the best she could, got fourth. There's a lot of running, some gnarly programming. <laughs> yeah. More trail running. <laughs> Basically, the worst thing I could think of her ankle. Like, oh, you know. And um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, texted her was, you know, she's confronted with this idea. You know, do I get it fixed? Do I not get it fixed? Just like this. Do I do I get my elbow fixed? Do I not get it fixed? Do I go talk to a therapist or not? Do I go talk to a nutrition coach or not? You're just they're both good answers. Might one of them may be better than the other, but you're gonna you're, you will survive either way, right? Right. But what I think is interesting is. What I find is that the people who have had to do the work, um, like she will be a much more competent athlete because 
she's had to overcome this. She's mm-hmm. had to deal with what's it like when someone snatches away my livelihood and my sense of self and my whole identity. Ooh, well, now aren't we in your field? We're not even talking about her ankle anymore, are we? Absolutely. I mean, I remember getting hurt and my entire identity was wrapped into mm. Lindsay the athlete. How, how did that happen? Like, how did you come to have that as your sole identity? As an athlete? Um, without getting into too much childhood trauma, <laughs> my athleticism was something that I recognized really early on. If I try hard enough, I can mm. get the outcome I want. I can get the external validation that I'm seeking. Um, I can be the MVP. I can train harder than anyone else. Like those things are all in my control. And there was a lot of other emotional baggage that was not. And so I fed everything into that image. And that, that was Lindsay. I could not until injury separate those two. Like Lindsay was an athlete, period. And it was tough. And now you're not. And now I'm not. I mean, I I like to do athletic things now, (laughs) but it was the first time, you know, I look back on it and now with my clinical training, I'm like, oh yeah, I was depressed. Okay. Oh yeah. And it gave me the first time ever that like my body, the universe planted me on my ass and made me be alone with myself. Mm. And it was like, okay, Lindsay, so if you're not an athlete, who are you? And I went back to school. I changed my career. I did all of these different things because I finally stripped this persona of the person that I thought the world wanted me to be for so long. And, you know, it's been a big, a big journey since. I'm still figuring out who that person is. Yeah, and is, you, you, won't, you won't get there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's amazing. And what's amazing is that you can apply that now. I'm okay, and now I'm in Kentucky, and I'm a coal miner. And now I'm not a coal miner. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, uh, you know, I do this job forever and then that job's gone. Who am I? I occupy this role in my family. I'm a father and then my kids go to college and what do my wife and I talk about? So that identity piece, the sport thing is really interesting because I have real mixed emotions about professional sports. You know, I love sports. I love, I'm, I'm a competitor. I love to compete. I don't really care about winning, but man, let's compete. It's so good. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I've kind of got that rare thing. Like you can skunk me. And I'm like, well, I got skunked. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I had someone to chase the whole time. <laughs> that's it was right. sick. I can just wrap, I can just rationalize my suckiness. Anyway <laughs> I want. Um, but we fetishize sport very much here. Right. And, uh, you see that documentary chasing, was it chasing gold or, I want to say chasing excellence, but that's been. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> there was uh, basically they interviewed all the athletes. These all these Olympic gold medalists were just talking about how that was their whole identity, and then they won the gold medal. Then what, right? And we just what you see is once again we don't really create durable people, and you know, and the athleticism could be surrogate for I'll get this promotion, mm-hmm. I'll have this car, I'll have this much money in my bank, I'm still unhappy. You know, Yuval Harari talks about, you know, we've just sort of codified happiness as a human right, and it's not a human right. The pursuit of happiness is a human right. That's really a different thing. And, you know, we, you know, I think, man, I'm just all over the place. I sound like just an erudite douchebag, but, um, you know, Gandhi was <laughs> like, you know, he had all these unemployed people, and he's like, you need to go and, like, make thread. So he had all these people go in and start to make clothing. You just need to work. You just need to go, you know, if you want your, you know, your, oh, you're done with your rice bowl, go wash it. You know, chop wood, carry water. Like, what we see is, you know, once again, if, you know, here I am in the, this is the first surgery I've ever had, right? And it's a small one. It's like a haircut, really. 
They basically flayed <laughs> my knee, knee open, replacement. resurfaced it's my the knees. It's, of a, knees. it's a haircut. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I can't put all my eggs in that someday it'll be great again. I'll win the championship. Like, I have to just embrace the process. And it's, you know, I'm a pretty physical person. I like to be physical. It's how I self-medicate. Right? Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. That's why I'm not an alcoholic. That's why I'm not addicted to drugs because I earned, I figured out exercise early on, sport early on, and being scared shitless kayaking and skiing early on just solved those problems for me, right? I just was kind of like a, a junkie. Yeah. I, just, I was like, oh, I'll just plug something else into that hole. And um, so suddenly I have this this knee that I train, and then it swells, and I can't train. And then it trains, and I, that's the process. And the process is now I'm 47, and I probably was not mature enough to have this at 46 and a half. But finally, I just right in the moment, I'm like, okay, I think I'm mature enough to appreciate that it's it's just the process and that we have to be comfortable with all of the messy process and all of the things that it entails, you know, my role in society, my talking about my feelings, making sure that, you know, and what you see is we're back to that first conversation we had about how do I, what are the, what are the fundamental building blocks of taking care of the human and making a more durable person? I have great relationships. Um, you know, I have the greatest, raddest family of all time. Um, you know, I, I have a physical practice still. It looks a little different now, you know. I can't identify through myself as who I am by my physical being so i better have something else mm. right and um it's been interesting to watch that you know i have um one of the ways i self-soothe is i've been getting they have these cinnamon rolls at my uh at my local market that are so good i told myself like till january i'll have one a night like one a night one until a night. january and i'm like until i mean and i feel great because julie i came home seven weeks ago i so have had like what, 35 of these things so far so 47 <laughs> i don't know how many sometimes seven 49 50 cent rolls i don't eat one every day but i you know and i don't feel bad about it because i was like i see what this is this is like a like a totem it's like it's like <laughs> my binky you know <laughs> the kids are like can i have some of them I'm like fuck off you little children this is my binky and um you know, it's just, I see it 100% as an old school self-soothing thing. You know, I was a fat little kid and uh, I used food to self-medicate as an early kid because I, was, I visited my dad who was a fat, crazy fighter pilot and just got so anxious and, you know, put my, my mom dropped me off in the summer and came back and I was like 30 pounds heavier and she was definitely like, whoa, whoa. My mom, what my happened? psychologist is like, what happened here? So, you know, Kelly smelly jelly belly, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Since we're just dumping it all out here in this <laughs> podcast... Um, you know, it's just, it's really interesting because I think we have more data and more tools and more openness to talk about it. Think about how shut down my parents were and their parents and, um, we just didn't talk about this stuff. They didn't talk about it. They don't have to talk about it. And, uh, now I don't know if we're any happier, you know, we, one of the things that we do with our girls, like sports are not optional. I don't care what sport you do. I don't care what activity you do. It doesn't matter. But you have to be in a team or do an activity. And we travel because we're lucky enough to travel. We make our kids super uncomfortable. And we take them places where not everyone is a rich white person here in California. You know, <clears throat> I know there's, I'm not saying everyone in California is white or wealthy. But the idea is that they see other people. And then we have spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot in the wilderness. And all of those things are to create a situation where, you know, our kids aren't just reaching for the phone or reaching for the self-soothing. You know, how do I, how do I understand this crazy brain in this context? So it's a hot mess right now. It's a hot, hot mess out there. And I don't know how we unhot mess it except by one at a time. 
And my mantra in 2019 was the glacial pace is the breakneck pace. This is how slow it's going to go. It's going to take forever. Mm-hmm. That's okay. There's someone, someone's going to be better at it than me behind me. So one thing I wanted to ask and get your opinion on, because I think that there are movers and shakers and the biohackers of the world that are like, I drink my tea in the morning barefoot for the positive ions and I get my sunlight and then I come in and I have my bulletproof coffee and I do this and I do and like they spend their entire day biohacking and I think that there's practices in there that are great for everyone I you know I adopt some of them myself and I feel like one of the approaches or the way in which the information is delivered has some inherent shame to it and if you're not doing this you are not healthy or you are not enlightened. You're not woke. So how do we start to distribute this information in a way that people, that's actionable, that people can do and not feel, grant the permission to use your language for these people to start adopting these practices? My, uh, one of my, it's a really good question. You know, because you all of a sudden, you know, before COVID, honestly, I was really in a dark place with fitness. And I mean, I'll put that in quotation marks, fitness, like fitnessing is a better word, right? Fitness professionals, fitspro. And uh, I was like, man, do I need another CBD nail polish? Like it was getting out of hand. Right? <laughs> it was, it was really like CBD toothpaste. Okay. All right. Um, I, uh, one of our friends is a guy named Nick Gill, who is the strength conditioning coach for the All Blacks. And uh, so he is savage human. Mm-hmm. Strength conditioning coach for the All Blacks. He's been there for a long time. He's really savage. But he wrote a book because he saw a real change in the health of the people of New Zealand. And the book was called Health Yourself. Health Yourself. Health Yourself. And he just had a million one-day experiments in there. Because feeling is believing. So one of the things that I say, and I took from uh, one of my clinical instructors, you know, I was measuring something in some tryout thing, and he was like, it's cool that you're measuring it because I know you need to do that. But if you can't see change, you didn't make change. Mm. And then I have come to believe not only that, but if you don't experience change, you didn't make change. So I'm talking about your like hip range of motion or your movement quality or something, right? Like you're a feeler. And that's what you're designed to do. Like you have a nervous system only so you can sense change in the environment and move yourself around. Like that's it. That's what it's all about. And you're picking up information you don't even recognize. You just, you are a feeling sensing machine. It's crazy. And one of the things then is that I say, hey, do this because you'll be better. And you're like, well, I didn't feel better. That's gone. Right. <laughs> right? I don't have abs. I did this one day. <laughs> yeah. What the heck? But I think it's really interesting is that when you when people experience profound change, they fell asleep better. They slept a little longer. And they're like, oh, they can connect the dots between those behaviors. Right now, our behaviors are so disparate, disconnected. If you, if you have uh, coffee after four, let's say. Chances are you might be able to fall asleep, but your sleep won't be as good. Mm-hmm. So guess what happens the next morning when you wake up? You're super groggy and you need more coffee. Mm-hmm. And then you have some coffee after four and then you're jacked because you can't go to sleep. So what do you do? You hit the brakes with alcohol. And then what happens? Well, then your sleep's super fucked up. And now you're caught in this depressant stimulant cycle, right? Which could be Adderall and Ambien, which I see in all our professional sports and all of our military groups. could be THC and uh, or Yerba Mate. If that's your thing. But what you see is that you're hitting the brakes and hitting the gas and you can't really see how the connection was that you just had coffee after four, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, and so you, th- sometimes these things are hidden from you. Like you didn't walk around enough to actually c- accumulate enough fatigue to actually fall asleep. So 
if you can sort of highlight, sometimes you have to, people have to take your word for it for the first time, but you can invest in a day of not doing X and such and see how you felt. Mm-hmm. So one of the brilliant things about Nick's book is that he's got a, all these great little one-minute experiments, one-day experiments. It's not like I've invested in anything, you know? Right. And I think that's really interesting. You know, um, we have some friends in the neighborhood, you know, and Juliet and I get a lot of questions about health for some reason, you know? And, I don't know um, why they'd ask you such things. <laughs> you know, and I, someone was telling me, like, they're not addicted to carbs. I was like, great, you're just not going to eat until dinner tonight. Tomorrow, just don't eat until dinner. You can just have black coffee and water. And they freaked out. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're not addicted to anything, are you? Not and I was like, you don't need to eat until dinner. Like, you ate dinner last night. I'm not asking you for a 24-hour fast. I'm just asking you to, like, skip breakfast and lunch. And I was like, how'd that go for you? And they are like, oh, my God, what was it you were saying again? And I was like, mm, that's right. So anytime people can feel and see the experience for themselves, that's really the magic, right? Giving people permission to experiment and tolerate. So some of this... I hope we don't have to repeat because our children, this generation, we have a chance. Like, we, we're going to lose a generation of people for sure. Like, we're not going to catch them. Their lives, they're diabetic already. They're overweight. They're just not moving. It's really hard to change the, the tanker ship going down one direction. Not, not Everyone's capable of immense change. And, you know, CrossFit has told us, right, all of that. Therapy, I mean, you can, you can you're a human being. You can always change. Mm-hmm. But it's harder. But with kids... You know, it's easy to change. And, uh, you know, if you if you have a kid below, like, 18 months, 20 months, up to three years, if they lose the tip of their finger, you know they'll grow their fingertip back? It's like a lizard yep. in its tail. <laughs> yeah, people don't know that. Like, you don't have to tape it back on. It'll just grow back itself. The nub will grow back. Because the growth centers, there's so much potential. The growth centers are still active, and they're still, like, full of chi, and you will regrow a, the tip of your finger. If you and it goes grow. the same way with the white matter in your brain. Isn't that weird? I know, crazy. The way we do one thing is the way we do everything. And it shouldn't be any different than that. But my kids understand, like my my 15-and-a-half-year-old daughter, you know, she's like, I didn't move much today, so I didn't even eat carbohydrate. I just kind of went carnivore. And I was like, what 15-year-old girl says that? (laughs) Right. And she wants to be jacked and feel good, but she didn't exercise, you know, that day. So she's just like, I ate a steak for lunch. You know, she's a COVID. I was like, well, that's a pretty boss lunch. (laughs) I mean, I just ate a steak. And she's like, yeah, I ate a steak. And... At some point, the things that we're doing, these biohacking things, are just the things that our kids grew up with, you know? Like, our kids have to turn their phones into our room at 10 o'clock. Like, that's it. Earlier kid for 9, 9.30, my older kid during school night. During the week, and it's 11. You still have to turn him. Because you can imagine I'm saying to them, there's some heroin next to your bedside, but don't just don't 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 reach for the heroin. You don't need the heroin. Just leave don't it there. Take it. Just let's just plug in the heroin into the kitchen. It'll be fine. What we saw is that it's out of control. You can't, you know. So what do you do? I constrain the environment. Now maybe my kid goes to college and has some tolerance or has some control or remembered. Right, she'll have to figure that herself. But I mean, you can apply those kinds of behaviors of talking about feelings, of walking, of, and eventually it's a thing that you do, and it's a pattern and behavior because it's easier for your brain to just ingrain it right mm-hmm. um practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent so what is it you want to practice right and so i think what you're saying is you know man there's a whole lot of people who are late to the game and it's really easy to be on my shiny side and be like look how cool i am with my butter coffee you peasant <laughs> you know and i'm like well maybe maybe i should make two butter coffees and try this and see if you like it you know see if it's better oh you stop drinking as much dairy and as much caffeine maybe that was a better choice you know so you know, I, I, I can't
can't speak to everyone. I'm a 47-year-old, 235-pound, white, bald guy with tattoos, physical therapist, yard dude. And I just don't speak to everyone. Like, you know, there are, there are people who are like, that's not my guy. That's fine because there are other people who will sp- pick that up. Totally. There are not enough. Thank God for all those people. Not enough coaches. There are not enough therapists. Like, you don't like your therapist. Find a therapist. That's totally fine. You should like your therapist, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, would you tolerate a shitty dentist? No. You know, so, right. you know, there, there'll be enough of us long enough and things start to change because we're, we're pointing positive. I think we'll start to change, but it's, it's, it's a bigger conversation and you know, it, it's all through society. I mean, we, this is about now we're saying it's about national security. Can't deploy an army because we're too fat and couldn't pass the tests. Um, we, I mean, they've had to move the, the, the movement standards for every the military lower and lower and lower. Um, you know, we're seeing COVID rip through our most vulnerable communities who have highest access to sugar and crappy processed carbs and cheap food and who are obese and diabetic. So suddenly I'm like, oh, this is a conversation about social justice too, right? And, and until we think in those terms about what it is to be a human being and how we how we create a civil society that that it's not a choice as a kid, you know. We uh, we did this as an experiment. We have a nonprofit called Stand Up Kids. Mm-hmm. We went and flipped a bunch of school desks. So our daughters eight years ago, nine years ago, um, became the first kids who ever stood at school, first all standing school in the world, not a regular desk. All desks where kids could fidget and move, and they were individually adjusted for them, and they could sit on the ground. They weren't robot factory workers. They were dancing and fidgeting and moving. Being and kids. Being kids. Imagine and that. And it turns out they did great. And then we had tons and tons of kids through the countries. We we work with Veridesk. Um, we support, and right now we have our first uh, research going on at Cal Berkeley over in Richmond, which is mm-hmm. a bunch of Title I schools, which are schools that are struggling. Um, not schools are struggling, but really tough neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And what we have to be thinking is, again, you can see now my thinking, okay, how do I start earlier? How do I constrain the environment? And it turns out it looks like it's a silver bullet for childhood obesity, right? If you want to reverse kids, you just have to make a move more. And you don't have to program to it. You just make the environment. There's no place change to sit. Just change the environment. So when we begin to think in those terms, I think, and we're clever enough because we have thumbs, <laughs> and, we, and we think, it, why? Because it's a better way to live as heroes than as villains then maybe, given enough time, we can, some people can make more change and some people make more change. In the meantime, you know, give me my sweet roll, my cinnamon roll. <laughs> Number 50 tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly, that's, I think that's a perfect place to end it. Um, if people want to get involved with you, the Ready State, where would they find that? Well, um, the easiest way to, if you, if you thought that you were listening to the Ramblers of a Maniac and that didn't, and you're going to want more, we're at the Ready State, and um, all spelled out. And um, you know, on the Ready State, we actually have, you know, we teach people through the site how to downregulate and take care of pain and improve their mechanics. That's what the site is. And then you know, we just keep dabbling. We've written some books and we have some, uh, we have some podcast book or two. And you know, um, you know, what we're really just realizing is that um, we have to decentralize power. It, it has to be you and your family. And I, I really do believe that if you give people the right tools, they'll make better decisions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. I appreciate thank you. it.